Okay, we want to begin with prayer. I got an email from somebody who listens and says, thanks for praying for us. So, we're praying for the people that listen on the internet. Okay, let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for another opportunity to gather together because you have paid the price for our salvation, bought us with your blood, and brought us into your adopted family so that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we thank you for the opportunity to share uh, together in your word, in prayer, in communion, the means of grace that you've given us. And we pray for the dear brothers and sisters who are the scattered ones around who, for one reason or another, don't have the fellowship that we have here. We pray that they know that they're also part of our fellowship. And may your word go out to them and bless them today. Thank you, Lord, uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we have Second Corinthians 3. Last week I took the opportunity to read this whole section so that you'd get the context of it. And there's an extended analogy that Paul makes based on Exodus 34 when they veiled, Moses veiled his face because of the glory. And what I was suggesting last week is that the problem was the hardness of heart. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. The reason for the veiling of Moses' reflected glory in Moses' face was the same reason for not allowing the people to come and touch the mountain. It's that the people were sinful, and in their sinfulness were unable to come into the presence of God and His power and His glory. So that, that's what the issue was, and so that's what this veil. Now what Paul is going to claim, as we talked about last week, as I gave you the overview, is that the veil is removed in Christ. And that without Christ, it's impossible to truly see the glory of God the way we need to see it. And that uh, without Christ, we can read the Bible. We can even comprehend. I, I believe that somebody who's not a Christian, who's very well trained in languages and uh, how literature works, can actually read the Bible and understand the meanings of the verses. It's not that you can't do that. But you can't appreciate the glory of God or really truly see the glory of God. And I've read um, commentaries written by liberals that I know don't believe the gospel. But they can tell you exactly what Paul meant when he said something. All right? They don't believe it, but they know what Paul meant when he said what he said. And so the veil isn't a veil. Um, this is where I think a lot of people get very confused and go into mysticism and subjectivism. In other words, they think the veil is that the Bible's written in secret code and that the Holy Spirit is this sort of decoder. And so then uh, the meanings aren't determined by the inspired author and aren't conveyed by the words, but the meanings are found by the reader. And so if you took Ryan's uh, class on hermeneutics, we talked about that. That the, what the, that's an improper hermeneutic when the reader determines the meaning. So the meaning isn't changing. Okay, so let's say you had your Bible and you were unconverted. You just grew up in some 
some kind, of, some kind of religious environment where they had a Bible. And you're reading it. Maybe you're like me. When I was 12, they gave me a Bible. So I started reading, and I got about to Genesis 3, and I go, okay, that's enough of this. Because I, I just couldn't, it, it didn't have anything there for me. Okay? But as soon as I was converted, I grabbed that same Bible, and I was excited about it. Now, the difference isn't that it, the Bible suddenly meant something it didn't mean before. It always meant the same thing. It's that the veil came off, and I could see the glory. <laughs> yes. It's not too much. It's not too much different than we can read the Book of Mormon, or we can read the uh, Quran, or we can read the Vedas, the Hindu Vedas, and we can understand what they mean. We just don't believe what that what they say. Yeah. So it's the same thing. Other people who don't believe the scriptures can understand what their claims are. They just don't believe them. Yeah, exactly. It's just so it's unbelief. Yeah, the hardness of heart is caused by unbelief and. When there's true faith, the light comes on, yes. And uh, to back up what you said about the liberals being able to understand some of this stuff, uh, I've even seen it recently, uh, and then I heard a liberal, somebody that wouldn't have said this a year or two ago, said, uh, well, you Christians, you just don't care about this issue or that issue because you just think we're going to get raptured up anyways. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> it's like I think that maybe maybe the Left Behind series, or I, I don't know where they're getting this from, but it seems even kind of recent to me also. Well, I was just—I got an article that will be published here next week. That's a critique of a book called *The Emergent Manifesto of Hope*, and that article points out that there's 25 essays in this book, and, and all it is is every kind of theological liberalism that's been around since 1870. You know, from denial of the literalness of Scripture, from denying you can know the meaning of Scripture, and then what they promote is whatever they uh, think is important. Okay, so if you think what's important is the social gospel, then you promote that. If you think environmentalism is what's important, then you promote that. And what they do is they decide what issue is important based on personal preference and then look for a religion that's going to do the best thing. And so if they look at what we believe and see, oh, they believe in a rapture, well, then they're not going to be good environmentalists. Yeah. And so the issue isn't then, does the Bible teach the rapture? But the issue is, it doesn't support my agenda. At least I think it doesn't. Now, Jan and I were interviewed, uh, actually, Jan and I did a radio show over a year ago on that because when these evangelical leaders signed this global warming thing, uh, Channel, or actually PBS, Bill Moyer, sent a film crew to get footage, and they ended up putting some of it on their website. But uh, Because they were looking for Christians who were going to say, oh, let the, let the earth just rot because we're going to get raptured. And we didn't say it exactly like that. What I did instead was attack um, their view of sin. Okay? And, uh, and, and who defines sin? And, and I, I attack the idea that it's a sin to burn anything. Because you can't burn hydrocarbons without making carbon dioxide. So what they do is they define, they, they define hydro, carbon dioxide as a toxic gas, which it's been in the Earth's atmosphere forever. Okay, but now it's a toxic gas. And then uh, having defined it as that, defined it as a sin to make any of this stuff. Well, I wrote an article that Dick wouldn't let me publish because it was too political. But <laughs> in my article that I said, if you accept that definition of sin, then God commanded Adam to sin. In fact, he commanded sin throughout the Old Testament when he told them to make burnt sacrifices. He sinned himself 
Yeah, well, yeah so, so making, if making carbon dioxide is a sin, then God commanded sin. And you sin every day because you're breathing. And so how do you repent of the sin of making carbon dioxide? Well, you can't grow food, you can't have transportation, you can't breathe. And what it boils down to, ultimately, and, as I, and I read Al Gore's entire book, Earth in the Balance, from beginning to end, because I didn't want to say something dumb on public television. I don't mind saying it privately dumb. No. <laughs> I particularly don't want to be dumb on TV, which I never got on there anyhow. And the bottom line is, it's the most hopeless thing I've ever read. And if this is true, then the only thing I could think of doing is repenting and praying for Christ to return. Because the problem with the world is that there's people living on it. And the more people are living, the worse the problem gets. And you've got six point something billion people. Every single one of those persons is a net producer of carbon dioxide. Now, some of them produce a whole lot, like Al Gore and his big house. And some of them produce just a little. They're maybe in a little hut, you know, heating, heating water over a fire. But every last human being, 6.4 billion, everyone is putting carbon dioxide in the air. And that's a sin that no one can repent of. You can repent only as much as you can decide not to drive, and then you're just putting it in the air when you eat food because somebody had to produce the food. Or when you walk around and breathe the air, you make carbon dioxide. But you can't repent. So they define sin as something you can't repent of. So now, now that you can't repent of it, you can't be forgiven of it, what are you going to do about your sin of making carbon dioxide? Well, you vote for somebody who claims they're going to solve the problem, which they can't solve. And so you never really get free. You, your guilt, you, you get your guilt, you keep your guilt, and you're going to have it forever. And so I say, no, I think God defines sin, and God told me I can burn a fire if I want to. In some, in some ways, the real problem, we believe the same problem. We have six billion sinners. <laughs> they Everyone need the gospel. And, yeah. and, and, their, and their original sin is existing, but they don't have a way out of it except dying. We have a, a six billion sinners that are in the world. We believe, believe they're all sinners, but God came and gave us a way out, yeah, which is the right. only difference. Exactly, and that's what I said on the radio, that the, the, when God defines sin, God also defines a means of forgiveness. And so there's hope. And yes, I believe God's going to come and judge the world. And I believe that, uh, that he'll set up a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. And I believe that God's capable of making that new heaven and new earth sustainable so that when we breathe, we don't ruin it. If we breathe, I don't know, do glorified bodies breathe? Uh, see, we don't know how this all works. But God will certainly can take care of it. But see, if you have a, a, a hopeless worldview where there's no sovereign creator... Who has spoken. So you don't know who God is. You don't know what he said. And all you have is hope in this world. And you look out there and you see there's 6 billion people and they're getting very efficient at living. So there's probably going to be 7 billion people and they get very efficient. And there's probably going to be 8 billion. And, we, and we're, not going to, we're, we're not going to be able to sustain this. And so the only hope is that most of the people die. Yeah. And, and the emergent church is doing the same thing. Oh, oh sorry, Connie. He won't know Let's buy offsets. <laughs> buy carbon auctions? Yeah, that, oh, there was a good article on that. I quoted it in my article that never got published. It's, it, was, it was written by a lady from San Francisco Chronicle. She says, modern day indulgence, no, indulgences for modern day sinners. <laughs> so if you want to sin by burning carbon dioxide, 
or I mean creating carbon dioxide, then you pay extra so you get your indulgence. Yeah. You know, here we got Al Gore telling us that we're a bunch of useless eaters and we ought to line up for the gas chambers, right? So, but, but, but at the same time, during commercial breaks of his show, you'll have people trying to get you to buy the same things to indulge yourself with that cause the problem. Mm -hmm. So why isn't Al Gore going after the manufacturers instead of the useless eaters? Well, the problem is there is no solution. So it doesn't matter who you go after. Yeah, there's no solution. Okay, so now we're talking about, how do we get on this? Okay, we're talking about um, the veil when you read. Okay, now the fact is the reason, not just Mr. Gore, but all, all, anybody that doesn't really understand the truth of the Bible, you have this hopeless worldview because you know that the world, is, the universe is dying. It's dying of heat death. And, and we know that life doesn't go on forever. We're dying. And, and we can't solve that problem. But when the light comes on, the light of the gospel, there's a solution. God forgives sins. And he defines sin, but he also forgives sin. And he's the one who sent the Savior to die for us. And we know that the world's heading toward judgment. And it has been since the, the Garden of Eden and the fall. We also know that there's an, a solution because there's going to be a uh, Christ is going to return. There's going to be judgment, but then there's going to be a reward. And there's going to be a millennial reign. And then ultimately there's a whole new heavens and new earth that's going to be a, a, an eternal paradise. And it will be perfectly suited for the redeemed from all of the ages and from all of the nations and all of the races that were the remnant that believed. will all be gathered and live together in this paradise Forever and ever and ever. So we do have that hope. Now, if somebody comes along, like you said, Rick, will say, well, if you believe that, then you're not going to be a very environmentally friendly. Well, how do you know that? I believe if you have a, a God who gives moral law and who tells us that we're stewards of our piece of property, then I, we have some reason to take care of it. Amen. God cares about how I take care of whatever I'm responsible for, including my backyard. All right? So... So I spray my weeds. Oh, <laughs> some people don't like that. <laughs> my dad visited one time and he looked at my yard and he looked at the neighbors and he goes, I can tell you're a farm boy, you know to spray your weeds. <laughs> you know, 2,4-D is a great thing. <laughs> now, their minds were hardened, verse 13, but their minds were hardened... Okay, so when Moses came down off the mountain, he was glowing with the glory of God. He has the Ten Commandments, which were words. They're called in the Hebrew, Ten Words. Ten Words mean that were written on stone by the finger of God. So God does speak words. And the words that God speaks have meaning, and they can be understood by the humans that read them, and that they are binding on the humans that read those words. And so it wasn't that their minds were hardened. It wasn't that those people, when, God come, when Moses comes down with these tablets and it says on there, um, you shall have no other gods before me. I am the Lord, you shall have no other gods before me. And so here they are with their golden calf. Now, it isn't that they can't understand that the golden calf isn't God and that they can't understand what the word of the commandment means, but it's this hardness of sin. It's the hardness of heart that causes the problem. Okay? And so the veil is, is the hardness. So here it says, their minds were hardened. And then it says, for this, until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, this is the one made at Sinai, 
The same veil remains unlifted because it's removed in Christ. Now, there is an allusion. Let's all turn to this. It's very interesting. Um, Until this day, it it is the same in the Septuagint version of Deuteronomy 29 and verse 4. Okay? Deuteronomy 29, 4. Look at what it says here. It's very interesting. Uh, Let me start it with verse 2. And then Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and all his land. The great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs and wonders. Okay, so you saw they know there's a God and they know what he did. Verse 4. Yet to this day, there's where that phrase comes from in from the Septuagint in our passage here. Yet to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. Now that's an interesting concept. Now that same idea is found in the New Testament. Jesus spoke and quoted Isaiah 6 to that end. All right. Notice it says, the Lord hasn't given you. And so... What is being said here, and we're going to talk about this this morning, what's being said here is that the only one that can remove the veil is God. But yet, those who are veiled are morally culpable for being that way. I'm going to make two claims today, and I'm going to prove that they're both true. Now, most people think they're contradictory, but if you think they're contradictory, then you think the Bible contradicts itself. The first thing I'm going to claim is that we are morally responsible to obey the law of God. To know it, to understand it, and to obey it. We're morally obligated to do that. Because God has spoken, and he's the just judge, and he's the ruler of the universe. And he told us, thus saith the Lord. Okay? The second thing I'm going to claim is also true, is that we are unable to do so, and that the only way we can even understand it and start to do it is for God to do a previous work of grace. The Lord has to open our eyes because it says here, the Lord hasn't given you a heart to know or eyes or ears to do. Well, then people say, well, why not? Well, it didn't say why not. It just said he didn't. Okay? But what uh, Paul's going to claim is only in Christ can this ever be true, that our eyes are open, our hearts are made to see and know and understand. Now, I'm going to get into a little theology today, but let's dig into this. Their minds were hardened, for until this day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. Then it says, because it is removed in Christ. Now, I believe some of the commentators pointed out that, in some sense, this section is autobiographical for Paul. Now, why do, why do they say that, autobiographical? Because Paul was a hardened Pharisee. And he thought that he had the ability to keep the law. In fact, he says of himself, the way he understood himself in Philippians 3, concerning righteousness that is in the law, blameless. So hardened Paul, believing himself to be righteous, believing himself to be pleasing to God, went on a tirade to kill Christians. He held the the cloak as they stoned Stephen, and he became such an activist that he went on this mission on this road, breathing out threats of slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. Yes. And the the narrative goes on that when God came to him, scales fell from his physical eyes, so he became 
one who could see. So it goes back to the same illusion. He goes from being blind, literally, physically, to seeing. Absolutely. And so that's exactly what happened for, with Paul, was that God removed the scales, and Jesus Christ's glory shone into Paul's life, and he saw. And he describes this later in Acts several different times. He describes it. And that the Lord spoke to him, and that he met the Lord who he's persecuting. And that was an act of God. It wasn't that Paul woke up one day and thought, you know, I think, I, I think, I think those, uh, Stephen was right. Remember, Paul listened to Stephen's sermon, just like the rest of them. And Paul's response to Stephen preaching the gospel to him was to go want to kill the Christians. And he didn't all of a sudden come to his senses and say, okay, I think, I think Stephen was right. He met Christ. He met him whom he was persecuting. And then the veil came off. And then Paul realized how sinful he was and how wicked he was and how gracious God is. Okay? Now, in one way or another, everybody that's a Christian has some kind of experience. You maybe didn't get blinded or you maybe didn't actually see Jesus. In fact, we didn't. Paul was one born out of time. He did see him. In fact, Jesus, Paul later, when he recounts this thing, he says, the Lord also said, and I will appear to you again. In other words, when Paul got the gospel and the truths in the New Testament, he literally saw Jesus. He physically saw him. He was one born out of time. That's what Paul's claim was. Now, uh, we don't have that, but but, uh, the... Uh, a person coming to faith is the same kind of experience. The, uh, like in Wesley's hymn, the, the, the dungeon flamed with light. <laughs> My chains fell off, and I went free. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. The dungeon, so there, there's the sinner in the dungeon, chained in a dungeon, totally helpless and unable to do anything to free himself from the dungeon of darkness and chains. And God's eye diffuses a quickening ray, the light of the glory of God that shines through the gospel. And the light fills the dungeon, the chains fall off, and now we're free. And we love what we used to hate, or at least be ambivalent about. Now, I was ambivalent toward the gospel until people started preaching it to me. Then I got angry about it. You know, when, when nobody was confronting me about my own sinfulness, I just thought, yeah, Christians, you know, people go to church, they get something out of it. I'm not going to. Because I'd been told that the Bible wasn't true anyhow, so I thought, why well, should I go to church and believe a false Bible? But I didn't have any problem with people wanting to be religious or try to better their lives or try to do good deeds or to, to worship and go to church. I didn't have any problem with that. It didn't bother me a bit. Until actual Christians started telling me I was lost. Then I got really mad. I wasn't neutral at all. I was an enemy of the gospel. I just didn't know that until somebody preached it to me. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> Carl's had some pretty violent experiences out there in our outreaches when he's preached the gospel to people. They just go crazy. Angry. Okay, so Jesus Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God, and it's removed in Christ. And Paul had that experience, and it was very powerful and very profound. Um, I have a quote of a guy here named Garland. 
whose commentary, I, I've, I've got three or four or five, or six, I don't know how many commentaries I have of Second Corinthians, but I've settled on reading the two best in my preparation, and I go further if I feel there's a question that's not answered. That's how I do this. I, I have to limit it somewhere. I couldn't get a sermon and a Bible class uh, done every week. So I can't read every commentary. But when I find a really good one, uh, I'm, I'm telling you about it. It's by a guy named Garland. It's a New American commentary. Garland, if you want to buy it, you'll love it. All right, here, just let me give you a little taste of what he says here. Um, Garland says this, A chorus of biblical witnesses ascribes the inability to see and hear to a sinful condition. Now, here's, here's something else I'm going to claim. goes along with my previous claim. That we are blind spiritually by nature, but we're morally culpable for being in that condition. Amen. Okay? <laughs> Think about it. We are morally culpable for our own spiritual blindness. So, a chorus of biblical witnesses ascribes the inability to see and hear to sinful condition. Isaiah 6, 9 through 10. Isaiah 29, 10 through 12. Jeremiah 5, 21 to 24. Ezekiel 12, 2. Mark 4, 1 through 10. John 12, 39. A lot of these are quotations of Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6, where it says that their eyes might be rendered dull, is, is quoted in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. Isaiah 6. So it must be important. Now, quote, uh, continuing on with my quote of Garland, Paul uses the noun form of the verb to harden in Romans 11.25, Robert, can you look that up, to explain why most of Israel has failed to respond to the gospel. Oh, wait a second, I'm, I got it here. He, I, I, he quoted it. A hardening has come upon Israel. A hardening has come upon Israel. Same word here. See Romans 11.7-8. to 8. In the context of his argument here, Paul implies that any who fail to see God's glory manifest in his own ministry of the Spirit are in the same hardened condition as Israel of old. For those who are hardened, Paul's ministry reeks with the odor of death. Remember he said the odor of life and death? Okay. Quote, continuing, The veil, then, is not simply a metaphor for Israel's failed, failure to see and understand. As Paul sees it, Israel's fundamental problem is not a failure to comprehend the law, but a failure to obey it. Romans 2, 17-29, Galatians 6, 13. They do not suffer from an intellectual deficiency, but from a moral one that prevents them from seeing and believing, hearing and understanding. The veil comes to stand for this hardened condition that prevents those who may treasure, defend, and diligently study the law from apprehending God's true glory. From the very beginning, when the covenant was first read to them by Moses, they suffered from a spiritual hardening of the arteries. Yes. <laughs> and that's precisely what I read to you out of the book of Deuteronomy. The Lord hasn't given you eyes to see or ears to hear. Um, to uh, anybody who's known the forgiveness of sins... We have a great debt of, uh, to the Lord. We owe Him everything. And one thing we certainly owe God is that we worship. And another thing we owe God is to give Him all the glory. Amen. And any, any doctrine that doesn't give God all the glory, I reject that doctrine. Any doctrine of human ability that praises our own great accomplishments is false. God has done it, and He's done it all. 
Let's look up some cross-references. And then I've got, uh, I'm going to answer a question that arose out of my last sermon. Okay, Robert, look up Isaiah 44:18. Keith, Jeremiah 5:21. Karen, John 9, 39-41. And uh, Troy, um, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4. And Alice, you got a Bible? Okay, we'll move on down here. Bill Mackenstadt, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Um, Isaiah 44, 18. They do not know nor understand, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. Yeah, so there it talks about God shutting eyes and hearts. Now, this is called the judgment of hardening. And we're hardened by nature. But when hardened people spurn God's offers, he puts them under what's called the judgment of reprobation. So now in Isaiah's time, now Isaiah had a very difficult ministry, although he had more success than Jeremiah had, if you want to call it that. Success actually is defined by being faithful to God. But Isaiah at least had some, I mean, he had some breakthroughs. He had, under Isaiah's ministry, we had the victory over Sennacherib when Hezekiah, remember Hezekiah repented and, and, and went into the temple and let, he got Sennacherib's letter that was threatening Israel, said, don't let Hezekiah fool you into trusting your God, Sennacherib says. Because all these other nations I already defeated, they all had gods that didn't do them any good, and yours won't either. So Hezekiah goes into the temple, reads it to God. You know what your, you know what your critics are saying, God? <laughs> the Sennacherib is, is blaspheming you, and he says you can't defend us. And what happened? Yeah, it's like 180,000. I mean, the angel went out and killed 180,000 soldiers. And um, Sennacherib went back to Assyria. And this is confirmed in secular history, by the way. Uh, and when he gets back to Assyria, he was killed by one of his sons, I think. And uh, so Isaiah saw that. But in Isaiah 6, he says, uh, here I am, send me. And then the Lord said, okay, so here's what you're going to do. Go render their eyes dull, and, or their ears dull and their eyes dim, so hearing they do not obey. What? What kind of ministry is that? Then, then, and then I, so then he says, well, how long? How long do I have to do that? And the Lord says, till all the cities are devastated. Oh, that sounds like a, a <laughs> I want to volunteer for that ministry. Um, I'll get to you in a second. Let's read some more cross-references. And the, the mic is down there. I'll bring it to Gretchen. Now hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. I'm going to read a couple other. Yeah. Do not fear. Do you not fear me? Declares the Lord. Do you not tremble in my presence? And it goes to the end of the chapter. It has a whole lot of. It goes. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesied falsely, and the priests rule on their own authority. And my people love it so. But what will you do at the end of it? Wow. So the people love to hear the false prophecy. The true one made a man. In fact, they threw Jeremiah down in a a cistern that was just muck because they got tired of him preaching the truth. And they were sitting there going down in the quicksand of muck, and an Ethiopian came and pulled him out of there. (laughs) Jeremiah is worth reading just for his interesting biography. Yeah, Jeremiah 5, 21, 30. Yes, okay. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may be blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? 
Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, We see, your sin remains. Wow. Do you get the impact of that? The Pharisees. Now, remember John 9, what happened? Was Jesus had healed a blind man? And then, and then, of course, it's Sabbath. And, so the, and then they, got, they, they did an inquisition of the blind man and asked whether, whether Jesus was a sinner for healing him. And the blind man says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, whereas before I was blind, now I can see. And so they're going to throw him out of the synagogue. right? And, but in the midst of this d- d- debate in John 9 about blindness and sight, Jesus says to the Pharisees, because you say you see, you remain in your sin. But if you are blind, is it, what does it say, Karen? If you were blind? If you were blind, you would have no sin. If you were blind, you'd have no sin. Now, the irony is just, it's like, can you imagine? You're a religious leader and you've been teaching Torah and you've been studying and keeping the law as, as scrupulously as you possibly could. And there's this blind beggar who's rebuking you. So you throw them out of the synagogue. And, and then Jesus saying to them, because you say you see, you're, you're sinners. If you were blind, now what was he saying? If they totally, truly came to the point of recognizing how wretched and miserable and blind they really are, God would give them sight. Yes, amen. But because they believed they could see without any Christ, without any conversion without any grace from God they remain blind so God wants I mean really what what these verses are doing are telling us that we need to see our loss of sinful condition and the, the greater irony in that story is that they said why is this man who sinned because this man was born blind and he said that the glory of God would come through this man being born blind and the ones that were born sightful were the actual ones that sinned and they had sight and they couldn't see the glory of God yeah, their sin was they had all the sight in the world and they couldn't see the glory of God in Messiah who's healed this blind man. And they were just they were trying to uh, uh, attribute sin to this, that, and the other thing, but they couldn't see their own sin. Okay, the next passage. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Amen. So the, the God of this world blinds minds so that we don't see. The gospel's cleared up, but the, the Satan blinds minds. Uh, Dan. It's like Cain and Abel. They're actually in partnership. Cain saw God face to face. And he says, why do you have that look on your face, Cain? You know to do right. Abel did right. And Cain refused seeing God face to face. He represents unbelief. There's an avail to extent, but they know the truth. It's like painting a picture like God is absolutely trying to shun himself. In the, no, he is the light. They see the light. All creation bears. Yeah. Cain R- saw him face to face. That's like Jesus, Romans. Why yeah. you, know you refuse to do right. You refuse to obey the Lord. Sin is crouching at your door, it says. If you would, if you would obey, it'd be okay. And that represents the Jewish people that have the veil. The light is there. And it all, they also... They have a reprobate mind. Because like he said, because you slept, refused... The people, the man slept with man, and because you refused the knowledge, the knowledge of God, I've yeah, that's Rome, that's Romans one. It's true. One, one yeah, Romans one, and it talks about actually the, everybody, even the Gentiles. God, like 
he's put the veil. You know, he's the one that loves. It's man that's guilty from Genesis to Revelation. He chooses to be blind, just like the preacher that's with the congregation. They choose the dirt together, like Timothy said. They want their ears scratched. They're guilty. It isn't God who's guilty. Mankind. Uh, I totally agree. Next verse. Uh, for, for God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And uh, uh, for me, uh, this verse uh, shows that we have the book of nature um, speaking as well as uh, the book of Scripture speaking to man. Yep, and so God shows... Do you remember what you are going to say, Gretchen? Thanks. Um, okay, I, I get caught up in the, the tiny details, and that blinds me a lot, so I'm convicting of myself of that. But in Isaiah 44, uh, all of that, uh, and Robert, you just termed that, uh, use that term, reprobate. Now, I don't have my dictionary here. Okay, all right. What does reprobate mean? <laughs> okay, Gretchen. A reprobate... Uh, is, a, is a King James uh, word, and it's, it's still a, a, an English word. I don't know how often it gets used. But it, the Greek word uh, means disapproved. Disapproved. And, and, uh, and if, in other words, where it says that because they did not uh, retain God in their knowledge, God uh, disapproved or gave them over to a reprobate mind. So it's a theological word. Oh, I don't need it. It's, <laughs> it's a theological word because of the King James in Romans 1. If, if somebody has a King James, what, what is that, Romans 1? It, there's actually a chiastic structure, which is like the key, the, the letter, where it says, because they disapproved of God, therefore God disapproved of them. Uh, and, and it comes out in the Greek very clear. Does it have the word reprobate? Oh, that's what i got to find here. Yeah, there it is, Romans one twenty-eight. Debased mind. mind. You got a King James, Romans 1.28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not covenant. Yeah. yeah so the, so the, because of that verse and others, in, in theology, when you talk about the judgment of hardening, it's called the judgment of reprobation. Okay. And it means when God has shown light, given light, offered light, and people say, no, I don't want it, okay, then God says, okay, then go off in your darkness. And it says, well, notice here. Just look at Romans 1. It says, because that which is, verse 19, that which is known about God is evident within them, and God made it evident to them. So there is light. Okay? And then it goes on. It says, but they exchanged the glory of God, verse 23, the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, of birds, just like the, the foot of the Mount Sinai when they made the golden calf. All right? Then notice, therefore, now because God showed light, God offered truth, they didn't want it, they didn't like it, so God gives them over to their own devices. That's what reprobation is. Then it says, verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Then it gives this list of wicked sins. Okay, and so that's what it looks like when, when uh, whether it's a, a, a corporate people, a nation, or an individual, or whoever, when we refuse the light that God's given us, God gives us over 
That's what reprobation is. And then there's no restraint. And when there's no restraint, things get more and more and more wicked, and there's no slowing it out. Rick? Just to uh, build on what Dan said over here, uh, I saw the movie The Bridge to Terabithia yesterday, and there was an individual in that movie that was unchurched and said, well, I, just, I can't believe that God just goes around damning people to hell. So I was thinking about that, and I was like, no, but, you know, he actually, he doesn't, because... Every person that ends up in the lake of fire has to climb over a whole bunch of obstacles to get there. It's their choice. They have to get through Dan. They have to get through all the saints in this room. They have to get through the greatest book that was ever composed in here in the whole God's Word, the Holy Bible. They have to get past their own conscience that God put in them. They, you have to choose to go to hell. Well, and they do. But you know, let, me, let me tell you the hardness of that, though. Uh, when we were doing the radio show, series of radio shows with uh, um, Brian Flynn, and we went through his book, he was, one of the things we were talking about is this Neil Donald Walsh and who, conversations with God. And Neil Donald Walsh, God talked through him and he wrote all these things. Well, what God told uh, Neil Donald Walsh, Neil, Neil Donald Walsh asked God whether Hitler was in hell. And God says, no. Well, wh- why not? Because there is no hell. That's what, that's what, see, there's your delusion. And, and so uh, there's, a, there's a morally culpable blindness, okay? But, um, and, and so it's interesting, the only people that usually believe literally in hell are the ones that have been converted. Amen. Amen. Um, I, 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 uh, I said one time in an article, hell is the most talked about place ever deemed not to exist. <laughs> it's like the lost continent of Atlantis, only they talk about hell a lot more than that. Here, here I guess we got another. I should quit walking around on this foot. Well, I was just thinking about the, the Romans. You know, God, they, they looked at birds and stuff. Ultimately, in Revelation, he goes... He's talking about the false prophet in Revelation 13. He performs great signs so that he even makes fire come down from heaven to the earth in the presence of men. He deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image of the beast who had a wound of the sword and came to life. It was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast would even speak and cause as many as not worship it to be killed. So you have a whole kind of a delusion that you see in Romans 1 on the whole earth. And everybody on earth worships this, this idol. Yeah. And that's how strong delusion really is. And that's how badly we need God to uh, give us a love for the truth. And as I read the Bible, I believe that the deluding influence as we get closer and closer to the Great Tribulation, I believe the delusion gets stronger. Right? Because it, it signs like birth pangs. And so there's the great apostasy which happens during the tribulation, but there is apostasy leading up to it. And the diluting influence... See, the more spiritually charged religion is, the more diluting it is. Okay, And we were talking about... Keith and I were talking about this. Um, yeah, I wrote an article that we're going to be publishing next week. Uh, based, uh, It's a critique of the book called Emergent... Manifesto of Hope, and my article says that all this is is old-fashioned liberalism. It's been around since the 1870s. It's not new. Liberalism, theological liberalism, 
that denies that you can know the Bible, that denies the literal hell, that denies this and that and teaches the social gospel. It's not a new idea. It's been around for... I, I, that's what I was taught in the 50s when I went to church. Okay? And um, I'm relatively new to uh, this thing because it had been around for 50 years before that, before I was even born. Now, uh, Keith and I were talking, and he says, yeah, but there is something new that's making this new version of it more attractive. And it's mysticism. Is that what you said? It's mysticism. In other words, you take just the idea of stark... So, okay, when I was a kid, theological liberalism that we had had no spiritual component other than you sitting in church, reading a hymnal, saying a responsive reading, and listening to a sermon from U.S. News and World Report. Or, or Reader's Digest or something like that. All right. And so it wasn't like I got there and I had this charged spiritual experience. I just sat there and go, listen to the... We should all go be good Samaritans and do our good deeds every week. Okay. And I'll think about that. I think I'm a pretty good person. And for us, that meant when people got stuck down on a dirt road, we went and took a tractor and pulled them out. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. It's good to be a good Samaritan. But there was no spiritual component to that version of liberalism. And when I actually asked the pastor, he said that Jesus hadn't done any miracles and there was no resurrection. So there's nothing spiritual. It's just liberal in the sense that Go and try to be a good person and the good Lord will understand and there's no hell. And frankly, the idea that there was no hell is very attractive to me. Because, the, but it's kind of a self-refuting problem because if there really is no hell, then the motive to be a good person is a lot less too. I thought, well, if I, I'll go sin but try not to hurt anybody too bad in my sin. I, I mean, I was, just, I was just lost. Okay, then I met Christ and found out that the Bible was true and that I was, was headed for hell and God had rescued me from it. So now I'm reading this new version of liberalism that's done for young people, emerging manifesto, and they're all excited. we got a new Christianity, a new this, a new everything. And all of this is all the same ideas of, of the liberalism that I heard in 1958, 59, 60, 61, except they've got, now they have yoga, labyrinths, uh, all our states of consciousness, uh, left brain, right brain, alpha level. Uh, they have this, now they have a spiritual component to it. So instead of just getting an idea, I should be a good person and go out and be a good Samaritan, they have an experience. And the more powerful the experience is, the more deluding it is because it keeps us from seeing the need for the gospel. All right? So that's what's, what's different now is that uh, we didn't have yoga or labyrinths or um, uh, contemplative prayer or centering prayer. We had no spiritual experience. We just had an idea. Now the idea has been wed to a powerful religion with the spiritual component, and it's way more diluting. If it was was attractive back then for a lot of people, it's more attractive now. And in Revelation 13, we just read... How much more attractive would it be if the person who's giving you the spiritual experience calls down fire and does these miracles? It'd wow. be very. You say, no, that's not of God. Well, you do a miracle. Unless God moves, we don't do miracles. But if the if the counterfeit's doing that, the only thing that holds is the truth. Yeah, the only thing that can save us from the delusion is coming on the face of the earth, and that's why it says, what does it say in Thessalonians, that with great signs and wonders. 
Antichrist will delude people. Yes, Rick. As further evidence of the liberal church denying the existence of hell, uh, growing up in the liberal church, we learned these creeds and that Martin Luther wrote, and some of them were just knockouts. I mean, they were. I mean, looking back on it, they're absolutely correct. Yeah, the gospel, yeah. But, however, in one of the creeds, uh, in this church that I went to, there was an asterisk by one of the words, right? And he descended into hell. There's an asterisk. And it shoots you down to the bottom and says, you know, if this offends you, then you can replace this with he descended into the dead. So oh. it's like, it, like, you know, that I can't say the word hell even. You know what I mean? Because, you know, that was, you know, because I mean, it, it convicts people, you know, people, people love their sins. Okay. I was going to, well, I've only got seven minutes. Let me introduce this. You can at least think about it. After I preached the sermon last Sunday and I quoted from Calvin to the extent that God universally loves all people and that he takes no delight in anyone dying and that all people are called to repent. The question from a couple different people, and it's a very valid and sincere question, is if that's the case, then how is it that salvation is an act of God? In other words, it must be that man decides who's saved. Okay? And, 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 and it's just not the way it is. And so let me give you... The answer to this uh, from Jonathan Edwards. Uh, I, I, Robert, you asked me the question first. And I said, Robert, uh, the best answer is Jonathan Edwards' distinction between moral inability and natural inability. All right? Uh, oh, this is too long to read. Let me try to explain it in my own words. Edwards, in order to show that. Uh, uh, spiritual blindness is morally culpable, distinguish between natural inability and moral inability. And what moral inability was to Edwards was that a person is always going to follow their strongest inclination when they make their choice. All right? And so if your strongest inclination is to reject the gospel, then you'll always do that. Okay? Why? Because of your moral condition. Now, he gives all, Edwards gives all kinds of illustrations, and um, he, he gives the illustration of the drunkard. He gives the, let's just take, let's take some, uh, let me illustrate this as things we can understand. Let's take the child molester, all right? That's one of the most despicable people we can think of. Now, for some reason, the child molester has an inclination to do what he does. And a very strong one. In fact, it's so strong that some of these guys, having been taken out of prison and had suffered miserably for their sin, go back and do it again. And there are some of them even pleading, pleading to be either in, in, incarcerated or uh, castrated or something, okay? Because the, their inclination is so strong, that's what they're going to go do. Now, are we going to say that because of that, they're not guilty and sinful for doing it? No. In fact, the more, in fact, the way we understand things, even in our common thinking in society, is that the more somebody's like that, the more wicked they are. Okay, the more bondage they are to their own wicked inclinations, the more we heap scorn upon them, and they're the, they're the lowest scum that there is. Now, why don't they just choose to do otherwise? Because the, the, the motivation to choose otherwise is much weaker than the motivation to choose to do what they do. And so, they're de so that's, in a sense, uh, what moral inability is. It's the inability to change your own inclinations. All right? That's moral inability. But what, what he defines as natural inability is that someone has an inclination to do something, but they're restrained from doing it by some outside force. 
And that's literally what happens when we put people in jail. Okay, what we're doing is if we, in society we see somebody with moral inability in some, in some way that's going to damage society, what do we do to them? Put them in jail. Now in jail, this guy still has the same inclination. The guy in jail still wants to molest children, but he can't because now we've put him under natural inability. He can't get out from the bars to do what his motive is to do. Now, why, why is this significant um, spiritually as far as the gospel is concerned? Well, what Edwards was doing, and Edwards' stuff is the most brilliant I've ever seen, and I don't think anybody's ever refuted him or had done a better job of explaining these things, is that what keeps the sinner from choosing the gospel is moral inability, not natural inability. And in other words, if the sinner had the inclination... There isn't anything, and this is literally what I believe Paul's arguing in Romans 10. Let's quick turn there. We got three minutes here. For, for a little, is it okay to teach theology in church? <laughs> Some churches think it's a bad thing, but I think it's a good thing to, to teach theology in church. Now, Paul, after having talked about the hardened condition of people in Romans 9, this hardened state, and only. The remnant is saved. Then he goes on to his, this hardened Israel that, he's talk, that, that we're talking about and that Paul's talking about. Look at Romans 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. So there we should pray for the salvation of the Jews. Paul did. Okay, verse 2. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit themselves to the righteousness of Christ. And that's what we're talking about. It's like the passage that Karin read. If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But because you say, I see, you remain in your sin. Because they thought they had their own righteousness, so they didn't see they needed Christ. Verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now look, look at for Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on the law shall live by that righteousness. Now the fact is, they, they never do. Remember Romans three or Galatians three? Anyone under the law is under the curse because it says, "Cursed is he who does not uh, obey all the things written in the law." So if you disobey the law at one point, you're cursed. So that's how far that righteousness will get you. It'll get you cursed. For uh, she'll practice that, live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend in, in, into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up to the dead. Now Paul's doing some Jewish uh, kind of midrashic uh, interpretation of, by analogy. Okay, Because in, in Deuteronomy it says, who's going to ascend into heaven? Well, it's, Nobody. But what Paul's saying, Christ took, came from heaven to earth, came from the dead to reveal God's righteousness. Okay, look, read on. Um, verse 8, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, what's, what, what this argument is, is that the inability to do this is caused by their sinful condition, not by the terms. In other words, they're not locked in a literal jail. 
with no Bible and no preacher and stuck in there and say, you're never going to find out about what God wants you to do be saved, so you're going to sit there and be damned. That would be natural inability, right? But what Paul is saying is that because the word is clear, the terms are clear, that Jesus was raised from the dead to furnish proof to all men, that, and what's asked to be done is not something inhuman. It's not something like, I want you to, to sprout. What's that? He said, I want you to go to heaven. Yeah, yeah, he's not saying, I want you to sprout wings and fly to the sun. All right? The word's near you. It's in your mouth. If you confess and believe, you'll be saved. There's no natural inability in that. And that's, what, that's what, exactly what Edward said. But there's moral inability because they don't want to. Because they don't want to. Now, the reason salvation is monergistically of God and not a cooperative effort between God and man is that when God saves somebody, God changes their heart. And He causes us... Now, He does this through means. The means is the Gospel preached. God has chosen to use the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. And so when you're preaching to this mass of hardened sinners... The mass of perdition, as it's called in theology, everybody has moral inability to, to begin with. Absolutely everybody. Amen. And all the preacher is saying what Paul says here. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Confess with your mouth. The words near you. It's in your mouth. Do it. And they don't. Why? Because of moral inability. But they don't want to. Now, but as the mass of people are hearing the words, some people... And we, and it's, it's just like Peter, there's, I don't know how many thousands and thousands of people were there on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 believed. It's a remnant. But Peter preached the same things to the same group of people that all had the same evidence before them that Christ was raised. They heard the same everything. And some of those people were pierced to the heart. The Holy Spirit breaks through the hardness, the rebellion, the unwillingness, the moral inability and sheds the light of the gospel. And then once the Holy Spirit does that first, then they said, what shall we do? Just like Paul on the road to Damascus, angry, bitter, wanting to kill the Christians. Suddenly, the light shines into his sin-cursed heart, and he said, Lord, what shall I do? Notice the immediate and radical change. And what changed was the motives of his heart. From wanting to kill Christians to wanting to love Christ. And it's a work of God. I'm telling you, that's not a work of man. That's a work of God. And so that's how, in theology, you explain the difference between moral inability and natural inability. And anybody that's heard the gospel will not stand before God in the day of judgment and said, you asked me to do too much. Well, what did I ask you to do? Just believe what actually happened, that Jesus was raised from the dead with all the evidence. Well, that's too much. I can't do that. They're not going to be able to say that. The word is very near you, in your mouth. Confess with your heart. Now, you you would say, well, if they can't do it of their own accord without a work of God, why do you preach the gospel? Because the means is the gospel. And God uses the means as the Holy Spirit to go forth and pierce into hearts and, and shine light into dungeons. So I shall continue to preach the gospel. Okay, we went over, but one more quick, Bob, and then we've got to quit. We've got to quit while my foot is still attached. Uh, a dear friend of mine gave this to me December of 89. It says, this Bible 
Tis very vain of me to boast how small a price this Bible cost. The day of judgment will make clear t'was very cheap or very dear. Think of it carefully, study it prayerfully. Deep in thy heart let its oracles dwell. Ponder its mystery, slight not its history. None can ever love it too fondly or well. <laughs> there it is. You can't, hand somebody a Bible, they got the light of God. Dear ones, thank you for uh, spending time together uh, searching the mysteries of God's Word. And we'll see you upstairs. It's communion Sunday, so think about that too.